Welcome to Journey South Bay. Thank you for inviting us in to listen to God's Word. Take a moment to get comfortable, sit back, and relax as we listen to today's message. So something fascinating happens to Abraham. Uh, if you were here with us last week um, and you've seen any of this story with Abraham, uh, he has an amazing encounter with God where in the height of his failure and the most embarrassing uh, moment of his life where he has uh, left God's promises, taken matters into his own hands, God meets him in a powerful way to restore him. And one of the fascinating things about it is, is almost the immediate thing that happens to Abraham after that, after God meeting him and healing him, is that he grows a heart for a city not worth loving. You know, I mean, your city where you live is a funny thing because we live in a place where uh, probably gets more hate than about any city in America. Uh, people love to hate on this place. Sometimes internally we love to hate on this place, but your city is like your family, you know? You can trash it, but when somebody else starts to talk about your family, you're like, hold on. <laughs> that, that's mine. That's my family. That's my place. And a relationship to your city, you know, especially with one like this, is, uh, is, can be really complicated. But something has made it uh, even more complicated as time has gone on, and that's cars and money. And what I mean by that is uh, for the longest time, if you hated your city, you know what you had to do? You had to learn to love it. But now, because of how we live in the 21st century with cars, technology, uh, way more money, way more opportunity, if you don't love it, you, just, you can just leave it. You can just divorce it without even a thought. And the amount of times this happens in our world uh, is unbelievable across the United States of America. Now, hold on, don't get distracted. I'm not saying there's never a good reason to move. But what I am saying is that it... So many people run from something they never want to learn to love. There's a place in uh, Tolkien's work, The Lord of the Rings, I think it's in The Two Towers, where uh, Merry and Pippin are caught in the forest and they're, they're meeting with the Ents and asking them about entering into this war of Middle Earth where the, the place is coming apart. And they ask them to go consult whether or not they will enter in the war. And the ends come back and say, we have decided not to enter into the battle. And Mary looks at him and says, how can that be your conclusion? Aren't you a part of this world? Now, that's my question for you this morning. For those of you who live in this uh, city in the South Bay, regretfully, cynically, even sometimes hatefully, aren't you a part of this city? Because one of the things that God calls Christians to do is if you have met me, then you will learn to love what I love. And one of the ways that you can most love this city is just by praying for it. And God wants you to learn to pray for your city from this text. And I think you and I can learn to do it in three ways, from three things in this text. One, you have to see the reason for the prayer. Two, let's look at Abraham's prayer, and then three, let's learn how it can be our prayer. So first, the reason for this prayer. 
So in verse 17, um, God is having sort of a dialogue uh, with three men that we will look at that text next week um, that are sort of uh, angels in the flesh and says, uh, should I let uh, Abraham know what I'm going to go do? And so the rest of this text is um, Abraham and God having this dialogue back and forth. And and dialogue back and forth between God really is just a vernacular way of saying prayer. This is what a a Christian does, is dialogues with God about himself and about his world. And what what Abraham does is he begins to have this dialogue with God over what he knows God will do to this city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And what he knows is going to happen is that God is going to bring judgment upon it. Now, why is God going to bring judgment upon it? Almost everybody's stereotype for the reason that God will bring judgment upon this is the part of the narrative that happens in this text beforehand when it talks about three men coming with God to visit Abraham in the city and some men of the same sex inviting them to have a sexual activity. And almost everybody assumes the reason God's judgment is coming to this city is because of this homosexual moment. Now, I say this with some trepidation and and fear in front of you, but that is not the reason that Abraham is praying, and that is not the reason that God is going to come and bring judgment on that. Now, it's not less than that. It's not as though God uh, has no opinion on that. It's not as though God has nothing to say about that. But to distract from that would be a bit like saying the biggest problem in Los Angeles that makes this city toxic right now is the gas prices. Yes, it's a problem. But that is the tip of the iceberg of what's going on here. Why is God going to bring judgment? Well, it actually says clearly for us in the text in verse 20 when it says, because of the outcry. He says, because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, this language, follow me, here's where I'm coming from this. This language of because of the outcry, this word outcry is the same word that is used earlier in the book of Genesis when God comes to Cain about his brother Abel. What had happened in that text is Abel is this innocent younger brother who's weaker, who's not as strong, who's not as wealthy, who's not as prominent. And he just brings a righteous offering to God. And because God favors it, Cain becomes angry, he's stronger, he's more powerful, and he kills his younger brother. And God comes and says, because of the outcry of your younger brother. And what he's speaking about there is he's talking about injustice and the abuse of power. And people in places of prominence and people in places of power, and people with places of influence stomping on those without any of it. And he's talking about a, a, a society, a place of injustice, of hate, of cruelty. And what is happening in Sodom and Gomorrah, if you want something analogous to it, would be something about 20, early 20th century Germany and Eastern Europe where people with absolutely no ability to protect themselves being stomped upon by people with wealth and power. And God looks at that 
and says, I will have none of it. Now, some of you are still concerned about that, but this is actually all over the Old Testament. I'll give you two texts with this. Ezekiel 16.49 says this, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did nothing to aid the poor and the needy. And then in Isaiah 1, when uh, the prophet is preaching against the sins of Israel, he says, you are becoming just like Sodom and Gomorrah. And he pleads with them to leave that lifestyle, to, to leave that culture. And he says this, do not be like Sodom and Gomorrah, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. And when that, is, when that happens in a city, when that happens in a culture, the heart of God becomes angry. And if you know how this story ends, God destroys this city. And this part of the Bible is, is one of the parts that makes many people struggle to want to believe in a God like this. Like, how can you have a God who does things like this and be loving and be worthy of worship and be worthy, worthy of following? Um, it's a hard question. And if you're a believer and that doesn't bother you and doesn't make you uh, struggle, none of your friends are going to listen to you. And they're going to think anything that you believe is credible, that a God would look at a city and destroy it. But you know, it is a problem, but it's a bigger problem if we don't have a God who's willing to do things like that. Um, Rebecca uh, McLaughlin, uh, she um, uh, is a British writer, wrote a book called A Secular Creed to basically talk about, you know, hey, our world that says we're not religious um, she basically says, yes, you are, uh, and you have your own creeds and your own beliefs and your own churches. And one of the things that she, t- she talks about in the, in the book, um, a, a, a society that wants nothing to do with God, yet has a big deal with justice and peace in the world. And she describes uh, watching this movie uh, called Just Mercy. If you haven't seen that movie, it's from a book by a guy named Brian Stevenson, who was a Harvard-educated lawyer who moved to Alabama to deal with cases of wrongful injustice. And what he set his life and career about was looking at the cases where people had been wrongfully imprisoned and doing everything he could to overturn the cases. And one of the cases that he comes upon is a guy named Walter McMillan, who was falsely accused of murder, imprisoned, for 12 years and had a life sentence. And when he looked into the case, the only evidence against him was the deputy who arrested him said, well, he just looked like somebody who would be guilty. So what happens in the book is that when uh, Walter McMillan is, is freed and Brian Stevenson gets the case overturned because there's no evidence against him, his sister is out there waiting and to greet him, and she begins to cry and to weep that her brother has been freed from this injustice. And she says, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for this. And Rebecca McLaughlin says something fascinating. She says, now, why would a woman 
who has experienced so much injustice with having her brother taken away for a dozen years, uh, exposed at this injustice, hateful racism for no reason, be looking to a God and saying thank you at this. And Rebecca McLaughlin says, here's why. Because that woman intuitively knows that God is on the side of people who are in, in injustice. And when she saw it, she said, I know God is for this. Howard Thurman, um, who was one of the, the most prominent civil rights activists before MLK, was speaking one time at Harvard University and talking about belief in God to, to Harvard students and even God's judgment. And he says, listen, if you don't have a God who, who has judgment and will come and do things about this, you know what you're doing? You're expecting me to look at my grandchildren and say that slavery thing that happened to all of us, it was not a big deal. And God didn't care. Because what God's judgment is, is His settled commitment to do something about the worst things that have happened in our culture. And that's why Abraham has to pray. Is that there are things in our world that really no laws, no governor, no anybody has the power to do anything. And so we pray. And that's the reason for Abraham's prayer. But secondly, what is Abraham's prayer? Here's what his prayer is. Because almost the rest of this passage is Abraham going back and forth about the, the, the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and he, he sort of comes with trepidation and he's like, well, Lord, if, if I can find 50 righteous people, would you, would you please not act? And then God says, yes, every time. And then he keeps lowering the number. Now, what's Abraham doing? He, what he's doing is called intercession. Intercession is just going on behalf of people and asking something. Now, going on behalf of somebody, this is um, a powerful moment because uh, almost everybody thinks, well, why is Abraham going on behalf of of Sodom and Gomorrah to pray for them. Well, immediately people think, well, because his family is there. If you read earlier with us a couple weeks ago, we looked at the part of the text where his, his nephew Lot moves to this area, takes his family, and begins to thrive. And so the immediate idea is, well, um, God, can you spare this because my family is there? But it, that's not it. Because what an easy thing that would have been to ask for, to just, can you please let my family get out before you do this? Can you please just spare my family? But he doesn't ask for just his family. He prays for the whole city. And what he's doing here is he's being a priest. This is the first act of a priest in the whole Bible. Because what a priest does is a priest stands before God and pleads on behalf of the people and says, Lord, what I am saying right now, may it be the voice of everybody. And would you hear their voice through my voice? And what does that have to do with you? Well, Peter says in 1 Peter 2, that if you're a Christian, when you become a Christian, what happens is it's not just your personal belief and your personal relationship with God. You are put into a, a body of people, and that body together collectively is what he calls a royal priesthood. That what a church is meant to be is as you speak and plead to God, 
you are doing it not just on behalf of yourself, not on behalf of just this church, but on behalf of the whole city. And if God were to hear the prayers and us pleading as a church, what would He hear? Would it be about only our needs, or would it be about the needs of the whole city? Because this is an amazing litmus test into what we truly love and what our heart is really about. Because if, if the Christian life in prayer is only about your needs, you know the danger of that. It is, it's, it's, their view of the Christian life is just so narrow, and it's so small. I remember I, had a, um, I was leading a Bible study at a, at, at a college several years ago, and we had a prayer meeting at Panera every Friday morning. And what we would do is we would um, go around and praying for people on campus and praying for things. And I remember um, at the beginning of the year, I wanted to teach students how to pray for things around them and in the world. And, um, and so I would ask them the question, what needs are on your radar this week? And, you know, college students, the first uh, part of the school year, it was things like, I have a test next week. Um, my grandmother's cat is ill. Um, I know somebody uh, is going through a stressful moment, stuff like that. And, and I don't think we pray those prayers and God rolls his eyes like, how you know, come on, get to the better stuff. But those are not the pressing needs of our world. And so what we began to do is I began to throw out things, like I remember there, were, there, were, there was war going on at that time. There was a, there was a massive um, crisis happening in Central Africa, a near genocide attempt at that time. Um, there were horrible things like horrible um, hurricanes happening in parts of our country where people's whole towns were wiped out. Uh, countless people lost their homes. And so we began to pray, pray for those things. And what happened is we began to pray. Those students, as the year went on, it was amazing how many of their friends began to be on their mind. It was amazing how they began to think about things that were not just themselves. It was amazing how they began to care about education systems in different cities across America. It was amazing how they began to care about impoverished people in places they would never meet. And what a priestly church does is begin to care about needs that you actually don't ever need yourself. To pray for people with needs that you will never have. To pray for things that people do not have the strength to pray for. You intercede on behalf of people and you ask something. And what does Abraham ask? He asks here in 20 verse 24, spare them. Now, this word, spare them, uh, is one Hebrew word, nasah. It means at times to lift your eyes away. But uh, fascinating, it's also the same word that Joseph's brothers use in Genesis 50. Now, if you don't know this story, here's Joseph's story in a nutshell. Joseph is like a snotty little brother who's kind of spoiled and annoys his older brothers. So what happens is they sell him off to slave traders, take the money for themselves, and tell their father he died. Well, lo and behold, he actually rises to enormous prominence in Egypt, and they have to be reconciled with him or their country is going to go through starvation. 
So when they're going back, they're terrified that their, old, their younger brother who they sold into slavery is going to see them and hold that grudge forever and see them killed and punish them. And they say, our father, his dying wish was that you would nassaw us, that you would look at this thing that we did to you that was horrible, and you would lift your eyes from it, and you would forgive us. And what Abraham is praying for God right here is that, God, these people who are doing untold injustice, who are doing untold evil in this world, who don't know you, don't want anything to do with you, would you please nassau them? Would you please forgive them? Would you please look past this and not hold their evil against them? Now, you, you know why you and I need to do this? Because if you and I don't do this, it is a very dangerous step into spiritual narcissism. Uh, C.S. Lewis has a moment in the screw tape letters where uh, it's a book about uh, an imaginary devil teaching a pupil how to lead somebody away from faith. And he says, you know, one of the ways that will be most instructive how to lead people away from faith is if you make their prayer needs all about themselves. But if, if you begin to pray for other people and that God would intervene in their life, you know what it will do is it will both grow your love for other people and grow your appreciation for his love for you in, in amazingly powerful ways. Uh, I've got a woman, I'm friends with Karen Covell. Uh, she leads this thing called the Hollywood Prayer Network. And her premise is that she knows most of the people in this city hate Hollywood hate what it's about, hate what it's done, hate the kind of people it's brought in, hate the corruption, hate the wealth, hate the culture that it's bringing in and influencing our children with, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And she doesn't, she doesn't defend that, she doesn't justify that, but she works in the, in the industry. And she's tried to have a ministry with people that she's worked with. And so what she often does is goes to churches and just tells how God has been at work and asks them to pray for them. She says, I want you just to please pray for this industry. And she says, because if you learn to pray for this, you cannot hate anybody you pray for. And the more that you learn to love people that are not worth loving, you, you know who you become like? You become like God. You become like somebody who loves and cares for people who will never care for you back. And that's the prayer of Abraham. And that's the prayer that God calls you and I to in cities like this. How can you do that? How can you have a kingdom prayer? Here's some things how you can pray for, how you can pray for this city. You can pray for it's the healing for the hurting. That is, you can pray for the abuse, the trauma, the racism, the poor, those with opportunity in the city. I mean, th this city is tragically segregated, economically, racially, socially, and, and there are things within that that are really toxic. You can begin to pray against that and pray for healing across that. 
Secondly, you can pray for institutional transformation. You could pray for families, for businesses, for education, for school systems, for media, for government, for entertainment. That more and more and more, heaven would show up in those things. There's a doctrine Christians have long believed called common grace. That is, God is so gracious in this world that those people who will never, ever, ever acknowledge Him, He will let His grace be in their lives and be around them so that the evil and the dark things that maybe they are even involved in are never that evil and dark if God were to remove His hand. That means God can intervene in things and be a part of things even without people knowing if you will pray for it. Thirdly, you can pray for wisdom for leadership. Pray for leaders who will best build dams against the rivers of evil. Pray for people, even if they will never acknowledge God, never know Him, that they would lead and make decisions that would bless all of us, that would bless the hurting, that would bless the ostracized, that would bless those of us who want to make this place more like heaven and less like hell. Pray for church unity and renewal. Not just our church, but churches all over L.A. County. That we would not be enemies with one another, that we would not be competing against one another, but that God would meet us together. That the gospel would go forth, that people would hear about the beauty of the resurrection and the hope of heaven. Fifthly, you can pray for salvation for all. Do you have people in your life who you think would never come to church, that would, would never have God in their life, and just, and just pray for them? Look, some of the reason we don't ever do evangelism is because we don't ever start by praying for them. Just praying that God would give you an opportunity. Pray that they would ask you a question. Pray that somebody would pursue you. Because what Abraham's prayer is trying to push you to do is to begin to pray for things that are just bigger than your own daily needs. And if you do that, the prayer of Abraham, it will open your eyes to a world that God is working in. Look, that's the reason for the prayer. That's Abraham's prayer. But thirdly and lastly, how does that become your prayer? In verse 27, when Abraham is going back and forward with God, he says, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I'm no, he's, he's nervous. Who am I but dust and ashes? That's a metaphor for humble brokenness. That the reason Abraham can pray for these people and the reason he's able to, uh, to plead on behalf of them is he's got nothing over them. Abraham believes that when he, when he stands before God, there is nothing in his hands he can bring. He's not standing before God as like, God, you know, I'm the real prayer warrior here. I'm the real righteous one in this city, so surely you'll listen to me. He's standing before God as broken and needy as the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you, if you don't have that in the bottom of your soul, you will never pray for people who don't want you and never want God. Because you know why? Because when you talk about it, and you think about it, it will, there, will, there will always be those people out there. And you know, I mean, man today, you, you can do it with everything. You can do it politically. 
those people who still wear masks, those people who will never wear masks, those people who vote this way, those people who vote that way, those people with money, those people without money, those people in that part of the town, those people in this part of the town, you will always, always have a yeah, but. Shouldn't we pray for them? Yeah, but here's the thing about those people. And every time what that is, is it's coming from something that you can stand on. That there, you, you, We deeply believe there's something about me that I have discovered. There's something about me that I know. There's something about me that I'm doing that is more worthy of God's love than those people will ever do. And the more you do that, the more steps on the ladder you will stand and grow a coldness for your city and think spirituality and knowing God is all about you. And the way out of that is to just see before you, you are dust and ashes. That there is, there is nothing, nothing we bring to God. The book of Isaiah, if it says all of us have gone astray, those of us irreligiously and those of us religiously, thinking there's a way for us to find something that we can bring to God. But the truth of the gospel is that the only way to come to God is with nothing. You know what all you need is, is need. And when you get that, that's the beginning of prayer for other people. And you know how you can get that? This, this story ends so sadly, doesn't it? In verse 33, Abraham, he says, God, if there's 50, will you spare it? I will. If there's 40, will you spare it? I will. 30, will you? I will. 20, I will. 10, I will. And then they go their separate ways. You, you want to know why? It's because Abraham knows in that city there's not a one righteous person. And it was sad, but you know what? You and I do have one righteous person in Jesus. And on the cross when he's dying, and nobody wants anything to do with him, you know what he's doing? He's interceding for us and pleading and saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Look, the way to develop a heart for your city is to look at him. And to see, when, when you wanted nothing to do with him, when, when you were all even trying to stand on your spiritual ladder and find your way to God, as lost as that was, even there, Jesus is pleading on behalf of you and saying, Father, spare them. Forgive them. Look at me. Look at what I'm doing and let it be enough. And you know what it was? It was enough. Laura Lin, excuse me, Laura Ling, was a, she was a daughter of Taiwanese immigrants and um, growing up in the United States, um, struggled through racism and, and, and hard moments. So she had a lot of cynicism towards American politics, American culture, and she went into uh, the media. And she was working on a project where she was filming people uh, leading from a, uh, leaving a dangerous country. And the people saw her filming that and captured her and illegally imprisoned her. She said they took her into court and sentenced, this was just for filming, and sentenced her. She said when she was in the middle of her sentencing, she said, really nothing could prepare me for the verdict when I heard the, those words 12 years. 
The judge said, no forgiveness, no appeal, and I was wondering if those words meant that the window of opportunity had closed and my fate was sealed. And she was totally hopeless until a former president of the United States got wind of the story, flew over there to meet with those who had imprisoned her, pleaded her case, and got her out. She said, when he did that, changed my entire view on the United States of America. And she named her first son after that president. Look, God calls you to love Redondo Beach and to Torrance in the South Bay. And you know what will call you to do it? Is when you look at him. He went in your behalf and pleaded it on the merit of his blood. Let them out. Spare them. The hymn says this, He ever lives above for me to intercede for all love, His precious blood to me, to plead His blood, atone for every race, and sprinkles now from the throne of grace. Amen. Let me pray. Father, our city, we don't just want to live here, we want to love it. And we want to see you reign And we want to see more of heaven dwelling here and less of hell. Lord, we want to see what you will do tens of thousands of years from now in the new heavens and new earth. Begin to have previews now. Would you begin to do that in our friends, in our school systems, in our government? Lord, with the poor, with the oppressed. Lord, would you make us a praying people? For our city. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. If you enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to the RSS podcast feed. This will let you know when a new message has been posted. You can also look for us on YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram at Journey South Bay. Until next time, God bless.